This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Chrysalis, the new book in the Fire Lake series by Brendan Reichs. The first book in the series, Nemesis, became an instant hit in 2017, and it's been described as Orphan Black meets Lord of the Flies. Learn more about the Fire Lake trilogy, Nemesis, Genesis, and Chrysalis, over at brendanreichs.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley Hello, and welcome to episode 355 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy Our guest today is Jasper Ford His 2002 novel The Air Affair debuted on the New York Times bestseller list And he's followed that up with six sequels Including Lost in a Good Book and The Well of Lost Plots He's also the author of the novel Shades of Grey and two young adult series, Nursery Crime Division and The Dragon Slayer. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Early Riser, about an alternate world in which it's normal for humans to hibernate through the winter. And today's show is brought to you by Chrysalis, the new book in the Fire Lake trilogy by Brendan Reichs. The first two books in the series, Nemesis and Genesis, both received starred reviews from Kirkus. And New York Times bestselling author Marie Lu writes, Reichs knows exactly how to mix action, suspense, and characters into a breathless read. And here's a description of Nemesis. It says, It's been happening since Min was eight. Every two years, on her birthday, a strange man finds her and murders her in cold blood. But hours later, she wakes up in a clearing just outside her tiny Idaho hometown, alone, unhurt, and with all evidence of the horrifying crime erased. Across the valley, Noah just wants to be like everyone else, but he's not. Nightmares of murder and death plague him, though he does his best to hide the signs. But when the world around him begins to spiral toward panic and destruction, Noah discovers that people have been lying to him his whole life. Everything changes in an eye blink. For the planet has a bigger problem. The anvil, an enormous asteroid threatening all life on Earth, leaves little room for two troubled teens. Yet on her 16th birthday, as she cowers in her bedroom, hoping not to die for the fifth time, Min has had enough. She vows to discover what is happening in Fire Lake and uncovers a lifetime of lies, a vast conspiracy involving the 64 students of her sophomore class, one that may be even more sinister than the murders. Nemesis and its sequel Genesis are both out in paperback, and the new book Chrysalis is available now wherever books are sold. And again, the author is Brendan Reichs, and Reichs is spelled R-E-I-C-H-S, and you can learn more over at brendanreichs.com. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Jasper Ford. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Okay, so in the acknowledgments for Early Riser, you refer to your, quote, creative hiatus of 2014 to 2016. So tell us yeah. about that. <laughs> okay, a creative hiatus. Um, yeah, this is, a, this is a bizarre one because I, I always kind of used to sort of poke fun slightly at um, writers with writer's block. And because I wrote like a book a year for 12 years, uh, without any problem at all, you know, six months, no problem, write a book, 100,000 words, you know. And and so I always used to slightly make fun uh, by saying, you know, that carpenters don't get carpenter's block, you know, or plumbers don't get plumber's block. Um, so why is it, you know, there's something special about us creatives <laughs> that, um, you know, can suddenly say, oh, the mood is not in me, you know, I, you know, I, I have to go on a long walk and, um, you know, and stuff like that. And 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 then all of a sudden it kind of happened. And I was writing and writing, writing, and the words were just terrible and awful and hideous. And then it was kind of, oh, God, this is actually really annoying. 
And, and the worse it got, of course, the worse it got, because you kind of spiral down, because then it was, then it was worrying about not being able to write. Um, and all of a sudden it just, it just wouldn't work. But I kept going. I had a sort of, you know, dip right at the sort of, there was this sort of low point where I thought, well, that's it. You know, um, 13 books was all I could do. You know, that was it. Cause ultimately there must be a finite number of books any author can do. And maybe 13 was it. And I'd reached it and I just had to go away and do something else. Um, and that lasted about, you know, until the following morning, basically. And then I went, right, come on, Ford, pull your socks up. And then it was just relentlessly, doggedly rewriting, cutting, cutting, cutting. And then eventually it sort of, you know, the fog cleared a little bit. But I'm, you know, there were all sorts of, you know, various things going on, but nothing that I can really put my, uh, put my finger on, I must say. Now, I mean, so did this have anything to do with the, the subject matter of the book that you were trying to write? Was that challenging in any particular um, way? It was, well, it was, it was challenging. I mean, all my, all my books are sometimes challenging because I have, I have no plan when I'm writing a book. I have what I call my narrative dare, uh, where I, where I set myself a dare. And then it's like, okay, Ford, discuss in a hundred thousand words, make it into a narrative. Um, you know, have, have subplots, everything else and some interest in that. So, you know, they're always kind of, they're always kind of tricky. Um, you know, My Shades of Grey is quite a tricky narrative dare, but that only took two years. So, you know, that's what I kind of expected. So, uh, and the narrative dare for Early Riser was, uh, write a thriller about, uh, a world in which humans have always hibernated. Yeah. If you're interested. Um, and it was, I think it was tricky, but yeah, it was just trying to find the, because the world was great, you know, the world was very easy to write, but then trying to find the, the drama within the world, because you can't just have a world, that's no good at all. Um, so I think that might have been partly it, but I, I think it was sort of many things coming, coming together. And before, when I was writing all my books and everything, everything was just right. And all the, all the planets were sort of in alignment to use a really hokey cliche. And then everything's right. But if something just moves off kilter, you know, I think it really is that, you know, it's like a sort of butterfly sneeze somewhere. Um, then everything sort of flies off kilter. So I don't think it was the subject matter because I can generally, you know, write my way out of most holes. Hmm. I mean, I've heard you say that just your normal process is you'll write 400,000 words of a book and throw out 300,000 mm. of those. Mm. Generally, I mean, I haven't ever counted them, but certainly I, I do write huge amounts and then, and then just sort of pare it back, cut it back, endlessly rewriting. So the, the first draft of Early Riser was, was close on 180,000 and it's at 108 now, I think. So there is, there's like 72,000 words that, that were just completely thrown out. Um, so I always, always overwrite and then, and then pull back. Um, but when I'm writing, it's like, um, it's very much, uh, it's like exploring. It's like going down a corridor, opening corridor or opening um, doors, you know, and, and you sort of look in there and then you kind of think, well, what's going in here? And then you kind of write about it and these couple of thousand words come out. And then you think, well, is that going to work? Does that have legs? And then you think, I think, well, not really. So I close the door and I delete it and I try, try another door. So I'm going down all these little avenues all the time, you know, and seeing what works and seeing what doesn't. Because if you're writing a kind of fancy book like, like early riser and you have this obviously this very sort of kind of rich sort of vibrant world the drama comes from the world because the great thing about fantasy and why i think it's like really cutting edge and it's really like the sandbox of the literary world is that you're creating new new ways of telling drama but you don't know those ways until you've kind of done some world building and you can see where the drama lies so so i think um i think that's why i spend an awful lot of time writing 
Uh, and then as soon as I find that little subplot, that little, that little idea, that little nugget that has the legs that's going to carry the narrative drive all the way through the novel, then I go, okay, this is the one and I've got a direction to go on. And then, but you know, you reach another little fork in the road and you go, hmm, well, where am I going now? So it's, it's a long, it's a long process. It's a long process. Well, so you said that the kind of the inspiration for this book was that this narrative dare was humans have always hiber hibernated. And mm. you said the key word there is always. Mm. And I think that's really interesting from the perspective of science fiction fans and the world's building and everything. Just what was this world like throughout history? Like in, um, you know, prehistoric times when people were hibernating, you, you, did you sort of flesh out in your mind what that was like? Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I wasn't, yeah, I'm not really sure. I don't think I went that far back, but I certainly, um, certainly there is, it is the most important word in that sentence. And, and I touch, it's difficult to touch on a lot of stuff because it's things that, you know, you generally wouldn't talk about on a day to day basis. Um, you know, and between the characters, they can't be suddenly having a sort of, you know, talk about cavemen or something. It just doesn't make any <laughs> sense. So, so I, I allude to it in ways that I can. Like, um, there's, there's one, the one that I do is, uh, um, so I do reference Shakespeare, you know, and how Shakespeare would have written his plays if Shakespeare had hibernated. And I think once you get that kind of little idea across, then a lot just falls into place. And, and the reader will, you know, have this assumption in their head and this very strong assumption that, this has always been and everything is slightly different. And you can, you can then re sort of slightly re-kilter yourself as to how you read the book, the book on, on in. But it's, I, I do like using things like popular culture and certainly with uh, Shakespeare because they're like standard candles, you know, they're, they're, they're very fixed in the real world. So when you mess with them, um, uh, it's very easy to see what direction I'm going in. Um, in the th Thursday next series, very early on in there with the, uh, uh, with the air affair, um, Landon and her then boyfriend, um, uh, sorry, Thursday and her then boyfriend, Landon, go to a Richard III audience participation play. Now I'm, I'm mucking around with it in a nice way, but it, it very nicely encapsulates the sort of world that Thursday and Landon live in, but it's using Shakespeare as that kind of literary standard candle, uh, which is, which is, I think, really, really important and actually works really, really well. Well, right. So like an early riser, the, the Romeo and Juliet in this world, Romeo wakes up after hibernating and finds that Juliet is kind of yeah, disintegrated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, that, that's the idea. And, and then, and then, uh, then I can refer it on to, to, you know, I, what I think are the two major, um, f filmic versions, you know, the Zeffirelli one, uh, and then the Baz Luhrmann one. Um, and then, and then it's like, it's like me and the readership saying, yeah, yeah, okay, it's, it's great fun. Look, but let's take it further. You know, let, let's imagine this world more. It's not just Shakespeare that was, that was hibernating. It was Zeffirelli as well. And it was Baz Luhrmann and it was Leo DiCaprio. So it just, I think it just gives that little sort of edge of plausible reality about it. And I think that's what I'm striving for in fantasy or science fiction or whatever I'm doing is, is that sense of it's impossible. Um, humans can't hibernate. You know, it really wouldn't work, but there has to be that sense of plausibility about it. Um, and once that framework is kind of rock steady, then, then hopefully the reader can just get on with the story and just enjoy this rather sort of bizarre off kilter world. Their religion in this world, there's something called the Book of Morpheus. Did you think a lot about Ooh. what that entails? Um, I, I kind of, I kind of did. I sort of invented a few religions actually down the line in my, my, 
my uh, my books. Um, the Book of Morpheus, not really. I mean, it. Uh, I mean, the shorthand there is this is a religion based around hi- hibernation, and and I think it would be certainly um, because perhaps the clergy or whoever was leading the church um, would would have an awful lot of religion that would be about survival until uh, until the spring. So I figured that um, it must be must be a sort of a, a god of sleep. Um, so I thought Morpheus seemed like a, a good enough um, one to use. But I, I, I must say I didn't flesh it out that much because I didn't really want to use it too much. There's the um, um, shamanic Bob sort of has a few sort of things to say. Um, but, you know, that's kind of you, you sort of get the vague gist of it, I think. And, and the dormitoria um, uh, that they were, they always used to be sort of religious, sort of, you know, run by sort of monks and stuff. Um, so, you know, it's there, but I, I, I didn't make a huge, a huge deal of it. Well, so for, for listeners, explain what the dormitoria is. Oh, the, the dormitoria. Well, the, the way by which, um, the, uh, every, everyone hibernates is, uh, originally I thought of these big sort of Soviet style kind of blocks of, uh, you know, apartments, each one, you know, a little sort of cubicle. But then I thought, well, since we've been doing it so long, maybe the format of a dormitoria has been, um, has been already sort of, you know, sorted out many, many years before. So I have this idea of these huge towers, right? And the towers are um, about sort of 50 foot across, and they're about sort of, I don't know, two, no, maybe more than that, 50 meters across, I think they are, so about 300 feet across, uh, and up to anything like, you know, 50, 60 stories. Um, and what they are is that there's a sort of um, a void, a well, a, a heat well up the center, and all the rooms are basically off that in these sort of little pizza shaped um, um pizza shaped apartments and the heat because you need some heat obviously to to keep everyone warm and and not dead um comes up through the center and that's actually heated by a great big um uh uranium and graphite pile which is sunk deep beneath the uh, foundations of the uh, of the uh, of the dormitory um and it has a little conical hat on top so it's um it's a bit like sort of round if 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 your readers uh, if your listeners um sort of google um uh, round towers, Irish round towers. Uh, they're these wonderful, beautiful, quirky little towers that that live in uh, Ireland and nowhere else. And they're these tall and slender and thin, and they have this little conical hat on top, and they're very beautiful. Um, and they basically basically look like that. I mean, I saw on your website you were talking about there was some particular tower you saw that kind of oh, gave yes. you the idea. Yeah, it was. Well, well, the, the whole book is set in a place called Tulgarth, which is about 10 miles from where I live in Wales. And when I was on a location recce, um, having sort of decided that Tulgarth was where it was going to be, it was originally set in two places, but then I, I decided to make it all one. So I went on a little, little recce as I do, um, because I, I often, you, you can often get very inspired by things that you find and see and, and putting in little detail as well. Little detail really adds to a, a big picture. You know, there's people really pick up on sort of little random things and it's very difficult to write random. So it's quite good to actually go to the places and then pick up the randomness there. Anyway, so in Talgarth there is um, what's called uh, Brontless Tower, which again you can find on Wikipedia, um, and and that is a circular tower with a with with no no floors, so there's a void up up the middle. And and I was staring at it, and and that became the model for uh, for Dormitoria. It was just so perfect, and in fact um, it is in the correct place for the uh, Gerald <laughs> Cambrensis. Um, it's in exactly the right place. So if you if you ever visit Talgarth and you want to know Charlie's journey um, around Talgarth, you can actually trace it, and lo and behold, you will find a, a, a dormitoria or the remains of one in exactly the right place. 
I mean, was there any particular reason you set this book in Wales other than that's you're familiar with the environment? Um, I, I'd been. I mean, all books have to be set somewhere. And because I, I live in Wales and I work here and my children go to school here and um, uh, I kind of thought, well, you know, why would I want to set it anywhere else? And mid Wales can be a slightly sort of empty place. It's not quite as empty as sort of a little bit north of us, but most most of the population is kind of around the edges in Wales. And and the and the sector twelve had to be somewhere which was very beautiful during the summer, but potentially very very uh, cold and dark and isolated in in the winter. And Talgarth seemed uh, as good a place as any to set it. It has a rail link, of course, which it needs, and it has and it has the um, the old Mid Wales Hospital, which is which is uh, now Hypertech in the book. So everything sort of um, ticked the right boxes, um, and I just thought, yeah, well, why not? Let's 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 put it there. Although we should, I guess, explain for listeners that in the book the climate is much is much colder. It's more like Alaska or something. Uh. Yeah, the, yeah, the climate is is um, very much colder. Um, interestingly, um, somebody was saying that I'm I'm now part of cli-fi, which <laughs> is a new genre, climate fiction. Most people haven't heard of it. I hadn't. Um, yes, the the world in which early rise exists is much much colder. Uh, we, really, we're in a sort of glacial uh, period and. Currently, in the early riser world, the the glaciers are actually um, they're not retreating. They're actually um, what's the what's the opposite of retreating when a glacier <laughs> advancing? You, advancing. Sorry, yeah, obviously, yeah. And I'm the author. Terrible, <laughs> yeah. shocking. Um, yeah. So the glaciers are advancing, and I kind of I kind of have the feeling in the book that this is a species on the on the sort of brink of extinction. Or they've been on the brink of extinction for many, many years. There's a lot of wastage during the winter. A lot of people die. And 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 obviously, you know, these numbers have to be replaced and that becomes a part of the, the story as well. But this is this is cl- climate change is happening and it's very dangerous, but it's kind of happening in the opposite direction. So it was just me putting a little bit of sort of um you know um uh, satirical fun in it. Um Really, but uh, yeah, there's another th- well, another good way to link it through to um, Wales, is, of course, because the whole of South Wales is um, underneath South Wales is like a trillion tons of coal, you know, really good quality coal. So I figured actually that um, people have set the coal fields alight underground um, uh, to release the carbon dioxide because then they might be able to kick off a you know a greenhouse effect and somehow stave off climate change. Ho ho, very satirical. <laughs> there you go. Well, and in the book, uh, there's sort of a climate denial movement of people denying that the earth is getting colder, that the glaciers are getting advancing, whatever. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, there's always there's always unbelievers, aren't there? So they're going, no, no, you know, everything will be fine. And, and everyone's a little worried. You know, the consensus of opinion is that, yeah, we should we should set fire to um, the coal fields um, and add some uh, add some CO2. Uh, but also, it's an, another thing about, you know, when to- I was talking earlier about standard candles. Um, satire is a, is not only great fun to use because it's amusing. It links, you know, the world, the early riser world with the, with our world, but it also, it adds a familiarity that the, the problems that we have in the real world are either mirrored or similar or a style of problem that they have in the, the early riser world. So again, it's, it's, a, it's a good way of making that sort of, um, you know, plausible realism kind of work. Right. I mean, one of the characters in the book describes whales as the cradle of fable. Is that? Do you agree with that? The cradle of fable. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, no. I know. There's so many. Uh, no, I don't think I could claim that at all. 
Um, <laughs> I think I think they claim it. Perhaps um, the idea, of course, is that um, there must be a very very strong mythological uh, tradition within the early riser world because of because of hibernation, going to sleep for for four months, and all the creatures that come alive in the winter. There must be a huge tradition, and I kind of touch upon it. Um, but um, Wales, um, I think Wales, like every other place in which humans have existed, uh, humans are the cradle of uh, <laughs> cradle of fable. Wherever you go, you will find um, extraordinary stories. So I don't, I don't think, I don't think Wales could claim to be the um, uh, the primary source of it. No, it's everywhere. Everywhere you'll find humans, you'll find stories. Uh, we do like stories, I must say. Yeah, I, I certainly do. Mm. I mean, that's why I do this podcast. Um, right. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, there are all these monsters in the book. Are those all just things that you dreamed up or any of those out of uh, folklore or anything? Uh, most of them I dreamt up, I must say. Uh, there, there is all, I, I think I added, um, so the little people, because the little people exist in almost every uh, culture, um, you, you know, most obviously, you know, leprechauns, obviously. Um, in English tradition, it's about, um, English and so English Germanic tradition, uh, you've got the, um, uh, the, uh, elves and the, um, um, the, uh, shoemaker, you know, and always these sort of little people come out. So I added them because they, they, they would so totally be there. Um, but other than that, I kind of just made them up, you know, things that c crawl into your ear and, um, and then sort of lay eggs and that when the eggs hatch, they give you dreams, you know, all this sort of stuff, which, which humans would come up with if they had to, you know, if they had to look forward to a, a long and very dark winter and make up some good stories. <laughs> Um, another aspect of this world is that there's this faction called the villains who were the sort of ref upper class refugees of the class wars of the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. They were quite fun. They came, they came in very late, late in the day. I, I had them originally as, um, as kind of, uh, shall we say more uncouth sort of people. I, I kind of sound a bit savage, you know, barbarians kind of thing. And then I thought, actually, that's a bit obvious. I mean, everyone, everyone would do that. What can I do to make it different? Because quite often I, um, when I, when I'm writing is I, I, I have various tenants by which I work, you know, and the, the narrative dare is obviously a, a very strong one. But, um, but the other one is the less well trodden path, right? Uh, and what that means is that if there's an obvious way of doing something, then you should do the unobvious way. You know, every time uh, the, un the untrodden path, uh, like in the, the poem, is, you know, you're going through a wood and you come to a fork in the path. Now, do you take the well-trodden path, which leads to, leads to, you know, safety, presumably, and um, uh, sort of convenience and, and safety, or do you take the less well-trodden path? And, and that's why I call it that. But um, so, so whenever you have a choice, um, you know, should they be barbarians or should they be, let's think of something else. And then I sort of think, well, what could they be? And then I thought, yes, this, of course, it would fit in very well with this idea about being kidnapped for domestic service. Because, um, there was a big problem with the, um, the upper classes in the sort of, uh, in the Edwardian era where everybody was talking about it, where, where you couldn't, you couldn't get any servants. You know, it was terrible. It must have been an awful time, you know, terrible. Um, and I thought, yeah, let's make them dispossessed British aristocracy who've been sort of ousted in some sort of weird sort of socialist experiment or something. Um, and they're just trying to keep going in this kind of rather odd 
let's hang on to these traditions no matter what um, and kidnap people for domestic service, you know, and, um, you know, I'll have you waiting, waiting at tables, you know, I have a good valet made out of you within eight years and who knows you could be a butler, you know. Um, it just adds a bit of amusement, I think, and I, ra I rather like the idea and it, and it, it just made the villains that much more I don't know, likable in a silly way. And then it, and then the stamp collecting, it kind of made sense of the stamp collecting because, you know, what do you do when you've got tons of money and you're bored? I, well, no, that's really, um, that's really unpleasant towards stamp collectors. No, <laughs> I don't know. It, it just, it just seemed, it seemed right. It, it seemed a good fit. So that's why I did it. So are there really eight different kinds of forks and would you know how to use? Each of them? No, I, I'm sure there probably are eight different times of, of fork. I don't know whether you'd use them all at one sitting. That'd be a hell of a lot of food, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think, I mean, basically, all you have to remember is you start on the outside and work in. I mean, that's, that's basically it. Uh, I don't, you know, unless you're laying the table, but then you'd have your valet to do that for you, wouldn't you? So you wouldn't have to, you know, worry yourself about that. Um, no, I, I don't know what any of them do. I know what a, I know what a sort of like a butter knife. I know what that kind of looks like, and you know a steak <laughs> knife. But then most people know that. No, I, I don't. I don't really know. No. <laughs> uh, I thought it was also really interesting in the book is that rather than projectile weapons, they have these sort of pressure cannon guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is less well trodden path, and and it's also I I have I have issues with guns in films and guns in books. And I think it's, it's lazy drama, I think, you know, and I'm sure, you know, that's a lot that you could, that could be quite contentious. But if you've got two people in a room and one has a gun, then you've got instant drama, right? Instant drama, you know, and, and, and it's easy and, and everything and something's going to happen. But I think it's slightly lazier. And if you were to say, okay, there's two people in a room and one can be more sarcastic than the other, right? Who's going to win? then that's drama that I think I would enjoy more. And also guns in our world. I mean, we don't want to really be kind of promoting it any more than it is already because they're just everywhere in culture. And it was the one thing I always regretted about the Thursday Next series that is that everyone was like tooled up all the time. And I, and I probably wouldn't do that if I had my time again. But I want, they had to have some weapon of some sort. And, and I thought, well, you know, like just having a cosh or a truncheon or something isn't very boring. And then I remember seeing these wonderful weapons in, um, uh, Minority Report, if you remember, where they have this sort of pulse weapons. And I think there's one in, in District 9 as well. And I thought, yes, that's, that's what you want. You want to have something that is meant to be non-lethal, but actually could be very lethal in, in the wrong hands. And, and what can we do with that? And how can we explore it and use the idea? And as it turned out, I was sort of looking at how this thing might be even vaguely plausible. Um, and then, then I realized that you could use them to punch holes in snow. And, and I went, Oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, I love this idea. And the idea that you can be in this like thick blizzard and you just load up the, uh, the thumper and fire it. And then for a moment, you know, as all that snow turns to ice, to water momentarily, um, you'll be able to see everything for like a second or half a second. And then it closes in and you're blind again. And I'm going, yes, this is, <laughs> this is, this is drama I can really use because it's, it's there in the background. You know, it's there with these weapons, but then you can use them in the narrative, uh, for dramatic purposes and it, and it worked really well. So I, as it, as it turned out, I think they, um, they work really well, to be honest. Al although, um, 
uh, uh, vortex cannon. Uh, again, you can go on YouTube and see some very interesting vortex cannons. Uh, technologically at the moment, they can't do as I suggest, but I do add a little jiggery pokery saying that it was some, um, some sort of a double, a double vortex and it cones together. So there's some sort of, you know, gobbledygook there that might suggest how they could work. So why are the handguns called Bambis? Uh, well, there's a Bambi and a Thumper, which um, I'm sure you've seen Bambi, haven't you? I have, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, well, there's Bambi, and then Bambi's best friend is Thumper, isn't it? The rabbit. Right, but why do they name the gun Bambi? Uh, I, I, well, Bambi is a small one, and then there's a Thumper, and then there's, uh, there's something else, because uh, they all have basically slang, t- slang names, and I thought it just makes it more human. You know, you wouldn't call it, and it's really boring. Oh, this is the this is the P seven two seven. You go, well, it doesn't tell us anything, does it? But if you've got a Bambi, a Thumper, a uh, there was an I can't remember the name of the third one, and then there's a Stumper Shrek <laughs> right at the end, which which basically means a sort of shit shocker in German. Um, uh, I thought that's more. It's just more fun. It's more human, isn't it? And it gives you this idea of you know they go up in uh, they go up, go up in power. Um, as 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 they become bigger and bigger and bigger, so so that's why that's why. In the acknowledgments, you mentioned somebody named John Wooten, who it sounds like was sort of your science yeah. consultant, or yeah, yeah. Now John's great because I've never I've never met him. He, he's a lovely chap, and um, and he's uh, I, I remember once he he emailed me and he had some interesting sort of comment to make on um, uh, on some technology I think in the Thursday universe, and and he was absolutely right, and I got it completely wrong. And, uh, and and ever since then, I've used him as my technological consultant. Um, oh, I think I have met him once. Yeah, he turned up at a signing. Yeah, he lives in the States. Um, lovely chap, seems to know everything about everything. And if he doesn't, he knows someone who does. And I just run it all by him. Like the, um, for instance, the um, graphite and uranium, um, graphite and uranium, um, you know, uh, nuclear nuclear piles underneath the dormitoria. Because originally I was going to have plutonium. Um, and then just plutonium sort of, you know, just slowing decaying. And he said, yeah, yeah, but he said, you can't really do that because you have to actually have a nuclear power station to make the plutonium. And then you might as well run everything off, off electricity. And I'm going, oh yeah, that's right. That wouldn't work at all. So, so he says things like that. And I go, yeah, okay. I want it low tech. You know, this is like just sort of uh, uranium and graphite and very much sort of, you know, squash court stuff, you know, Enrico Fermi, you know, what was going on there. Um, low tech, um, but so um, anyway, he's he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned Bambi because a lot of the pop culture references in this book, like Shakespeare, I guess you mentioned, too, are, are, mm. are from our world, um, except sometimes tweaked a little bit. But that I just thought it was funny how everybody watches Bonanza and and things like that to uh, to follow. You know, they have, obviously in this world, being able to fall asleep and stay asleep is really important. So watching kind of boring, mindless stuff is uh, sort of a survival value. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, it's an, it's an inter- it's, it's quite an interesting, um, uh, subject actually, because as, as I grow older and I do, um, I've actually grown older since I've been speaking to you, oddly <laughs> enough. Um, uh, so I'm 58 now and, and all the jokes that I used to tell when I was a teenager or even in my twenties and thirties, I can't really tell because they had pop culture references that n- people no longer understand like i've got this like killer joke about bonanza right but you have to know that bonanza is a western and you have to know that the the arkwrights were the main family and you also have to know the names of the arkwrights now clearly this is a joke that is completely dead in the water unless you're someone who you know understands bonanza 
And and I, I got worried about this because I was thinking, okay, pop culture references are dying. They, they, they die and they go out of use. And I think some of them are actually worth hanging on to. So these references are not only, I think, amusing, because I think most people know that Bonanza obviously was a, you know, a TV, a TV Western that ran for many, many series. Um, but I think what I'm doing is I'm revitalizing these dying pop culture references. And I think a world in which we can reference Bonanza um, and Carmen Miranda and her fruit hat is a slightly richer world. Uh, and, and, and that is another reason why I, you know, refer back to these things. And perhaps, I mean, Tom Jones isn't a, isn't a failed pop culture reference yet, but a lot of these references are things that I think we should hang on to, uh, to revitalize them. That someone will read my book and said, well, hang on, who is, who is Carmen Miranda? And then you go on YouTube and you go, okay, right. That's just, that's just brilliant. She's amazing. <laughs> and the fruit hat and everything. And, and I think that's, I don't know. I mean, when I'm writing, these things go through my head and I don't know whether I'm doing anything right or wrong. But I, I think there are some pop, pop culture references that, that we need to keep alive. Uh, and it's, and it's important. I mean, is that something you think about while you're writing? Is, is somebody going to, are people going to read this in a hundred years or is this joke going to be funny in a hundred years or? Uh, no, I kind of write it for the now more, but uh, it's really for people who might be, who might be 30. And who have heard maybe someone mention Carmen Rand twice, and I'm just mentioning it again, and then that pathway is renewed. Um, so when someone says, "Oh, look, there's a video of Carmen Rand here," and you go, "Oh, let's have a look at that. I heard about her," and <laughs> and that's how it works. It's not just me saying, "Look, this is where." It's just those pathways in 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 the brain, you know, that is just running over them again. So so who's ever reading it will go, "Oh yeah, Bonanza, I know what that is," you know. Um, and I think that's that's essentially you know what I'm doing. I mean, among the boring works that people used to fall asleep in this world are Ulysses, mm. Moby Dick, and War and Peace. Yeah. So I feel like maybe fighting words for some people. Yeah, they are actually. Um, they are quite long, though, I have to say. Um, but I have been here before, and I have argued, you know, whether these books are boring or not. They're not necessarily boring, but they could induce a sense of sort of a soporific effect. I mean, if you're feeling a bit drowsy and you go, right, I'm going to read War and Peace, I think you could be dropping off to sleep fairly soon. It's not, it's, it's a great book, but it's not a kind of page-turner, rivety kind of, oh my God, I wonder what happens next sort of book. Um, and, and whilst Moby Dick, yeah, this, I did have some angry emails when I suggested <laughs> this. Um, but, but I countered it with, actually, I didn't. I had, I had someone actually turn up at one of my talks. I, I think they were going to come anyway. I didn't think they came because of, I'd been trashing Melville. Um, and they said, you know, I've got, you know, Jasper, Jasper, I really got to pick you up on this. You know, actually, you know, Moby Dick is actually a really good book. And I go, it is really, uh, really good, but it is a bit boring in bits. Uh, and he said, okay, well, like which bits? Cause, you know, the, the bit where they're chasing the, um, uh, chasing the, the whales is very exciting. I said, yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually thinking of Father Maple's speech. Um, and it does run on for like a very, very long chapter and it is incredibly tedious. And he thought for a bit and he went, yeah, all right, you're right. I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah, Father Maple's speech is a little bit boring. So I, I got away with that, thankfully. But, um, yeah, I mean, they're not so much boring as I think they could induce a little bit of sleep in someone whose eyelids were heavy. Seems like that could be a good way of uh, attracting audiences to your events is just trolling people by insulting all sorts of popular <laughs> things and 
Then yeah, they come to argue with you? Yeah, that'd be good to get some literary trolls, yeah, when you're <laughs> quote, quoting sort of tracks of Melville and stuff. Yeah, that could be that could be fun, I suppose. But they're not really trolls, are they? Because they're kind of nice sort of people. Who can no, but you would be the tr- yeah. you're the troll. Yeah, right, I suppose I'm it? trolling, aren't I? Yeah, I suppose I am. Yeah, I could do that, couldn't I? Yeah, just um, yeah, fighting talk. Yeah, yeah, come around to my come around to my talk, and I'll suggest that you know Pamela is really boring, which it which it is a bit boring actually. Or Paradise Lost again, slightly tedious. So yeah. Mm. Well, the the stuff in hell is more interesting than the other stuff. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right there. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to ask you about, you know, dreams play a large role mm. in this book. Could you talk about yeah. that? Uh, yeah. Well, dreams, um, obviously, if, if a one is writing a book about hibernation, then presumably sleep is a big part of it. And dreams are a big part of sleep. So... Uh, clearly this was something that I could use and how could I use it and what, how could I inveigle it into the sort of some, one of the main plot strands. Um, and I mean, the thing about dreams is, um, the interesting about sleep is I, I was listening to a, a, uh, an academic, uh, who was giving a talk about kind of sleeping basically. And, and he was great because he, he said he, that he'd been studying sleep for like 42 years and, and he, he, he had actually, in all that 42 years, he had come up with two unassailable facts about sleeping, and that, that, those are the only facts there were. And, and kind of, this does kind of make you sit up and take notice. And he said, the first is that we go to sleep, right? And I go, okay, that's a fact. Yeah, <laughs> right, I, I can buy into that. And he said, the second fact is that we go to sleep when we're sleepy. <laughs> and I go, yes, that is a fact as well. And I really like this because it was an academic not on an ivory tower. And, and it was an academic saying, we study things because we want to know what's going on, but often there are no answers, but, you know, it is a pursuit of truth. And that is, you know, that is the sort of the wonderful thing about academia and, and the pursuit of knowledge. Um, so I could sort of mess around with it a bit, but nobody really knows. No one knows what dreams are for. I mean, no one has any idea what, what dreams are for. We know we kind of need them. Um, it, it, uh, the the theory that I buy into is that it's it's a, a a random jumbling of thoughts inside the head, firing here, there, and everywhere, and the semi-conscious mind tries to create a narrative out of it. I think that's probably um, the way that it works. And in trying to car- to create that narrative, we kind of guide where all these loose ends, where all these sort of you know random strands of memory all fit. And it's it's very bizarre, but it's clearly just a, like a little artifact of the of the sleeping mind that's just we just happen to have um but i thought well yeah okay we, we can do do something with this because clearly um to hibernate it, you're gonna you need to bulk up to begin with so you have to be like almost double your your weight your um your winter weight uh, sorry your spring weight and then you'll lose it throughout the winter just like a bear does because i was taking a bear as a kind of reference um but um but subconscious activity, of course, uses a huge amount of power. Our brains uh, use a disproportionate amount of our uh, our energy that we have to use, huge amounts. We we have to eat quite a lot to keep our brains going. Um, and I thought, right, well, if you're gonna, if you want to save weight, if you want to possibly survive more until the the spring, then if you remove dreams, uh, this subconscious activity, then there's a potential to to you know survive, uh, great survival possibilities and i went okay this is this could really really work so not only are people studying 
uh, sleep, but they're also studying dreams and what dreams mean, what what we could do with dreams. And without uh, giving too much away, um, this this whole notion of dreams and uh, sort of active dreaming uh, all sort of comes into the uh, comes into the book in a in a big kind of way. Right. So in the story, there's a drug called Morphinox that yeah. more well-off people take to suppress their dreams. Yeah, Morphinox, yes. Uh, well, it's quite a nice name, Morphinox. I think they'd hmm. call it that. Uh, Morphinox, yeah, that's exactly what it does. It actually suppresses, suppresses your dreams and, uh, uh, essentially kind of almost guarantees you're gonna, you're gonna survive until the spring because uh, that's what it does. Uh, and my, my, uh, my character, my protagonist, uh, Charlie Worthing, uh, they've been on Morphinox their entire life and it looks like they may have to go off it. And, and that is a driving factor to end up working for the sleep consoles, which are these this sort of slightly elite but oddball, uh, group of people who look after all the, the sleeping people. So it gives me a, a good, um, uh, a good way of getting Charlie into the action and, uh, and also sets up this notion that, um, there is a very, very slight possibility that if you take Morphinox, you might actually dip too far down into the dark, abyss of hibernation and suffer a neural collapse and sort of arise at a kind of zombie-like existence. So, but, you know, hey-ho, all drugs have side effects, you know, <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure it's on the box, you know, possibility of becoming a zombie, you know, which would be yeah, quite... Or, or those very awkward TV commercials with all the... Yeah, it, it would, wouldn't it? Yes, that's, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes, warning, warning you, so morphonauts <laughs> could turn you into a zombie, you know, yeah, exactly. But, but the useful thing about having zombies is you can, you can then kind of, um, you know, um, gather them all up and then use them for organ transplantation. So nothing's lost, you know, and it's a sort of vertically integrated, um, vertically integrated company, Hybertech, that not only develop Morphinox, but also, um, help out with a lot of, um, uh, you know, transplants. You can have a new hand or an arm, you know, cause, uh, very interestingly enough, um, as I do a little bit of, um, research, just enough to make it seem plausible, uh, is that there, there are inroads to trying to get humans into a hibernatory state in order to do transplants. Uh, and that looks like a technology, an emerging technology. So, so that is kind of interesting, I thought. Um, and yeah, you could wake up with a new arm. Be pretty cool, really. That's interesting. I mean, one one uh, detail that I thought was really well observed is that because the wealthy people are suppressing their dreams, it makes dreams seem like sort of um, low class and people Ooh. don't want to have them, which I think is such an interesting observation that basically anything that wealthy people do becomes, uh, you know, preferred regardless of any sort of rational considerations. Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, that's that's we yeah, we see that again and again, don't we? Um, yes, exactly. That that only only poor people dream, <laughs> yeah, or they or people are called referred to as dreamers as a kind of uh, uh, pejorative sort of uh, word. So yeah, oh, absolutely, yes. Things that elite people do become obviously the right thing to do, and and anything else, you know, the 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 lower classes not not dreaming, uh, are dreaming. It's naturally sleeping. Um, and, and there seem, and several references to this sort of two tiers of, of sleeping because, um, the, the Sarah Siddons dormitoria, all the, all the dormitoria are named after local, um, uh, local sort of celebrities. Um, and, uh, the Sarah Siddons where, where Charlie Worthing ends up is a naturally sleeping dormitoria. And, and there's lots of sort of amulets and, you know, good, 
good sleep, good sleeping candles and offerings, votive offerings and, and things like that. And it just gives you an idea that there's this sort of t- two tier of, of sleeping, uh, if you like. And that's, you know, these interesting little cultural sort of little extras within the book, just to give you another, a, a taste of what the world is. It, it, sort of alluding to a greater world. I think that's what I enjoy about putting in small amounts of detail. You allude to a much, much greater world that exists beyond the, uh, beyond the boundaries of the book. And because readers are such very, very clever people, especially, you know, in fantasy and sci-fi, they're very imaginative people. And those little markers are enough to set, set an imaginative reader off on this you know, oh, that's interesting because I wonder what that does, and blah 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 blah, um, and all of a sudden, yeah, you you've increased the boundaries beyond uh, beyond the book, which I which I think I think is good fun. I also thought it was really interesting because there's this character named Laura Strauger who doesn't hibernate; she sleeps the way that we do, and so is sort of like a freak of nature in this uh, world. Um, yeah, well, she's um, uh, yeah, uh, Laura Strauger. It's uh, Strauger. Um, it's uh, yeah, Strauger. It's named after um, the. Um, uh, telephone exchanges, and it's a little sort of private joke between a friend of mine because we're always trying to make Strouger phone systems. It's it's the old electromechanical, and they they sort of click, you know, clack 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 clack, and do that, and that's called a Strouger system. So I, I call her Laura Strouger, so just for fun. Um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, yeah, because she she represents like a completely normal person, and it's like she's escaped from the real world, and it's like yeah, hang on. She's like us, and she's there. And hang on, what's going to happen here? And as as the story goes on, you can see that yes, she's obviously a very, very important person, and and she has this wager going, um, uh, in which she has to she's sold off, or uh, I think her parents sold off the the rights to her firstborn, and she's trying to win back the the rights of of her firstborn because as as you you read the book, you understand that. Um, the sort of re- reproductive politics, uh, to everything that's going on. And because you want the health- healthiest child, uh, your, your, your child may not be yours, uh, because you might not be perhaps, you know, have the right kind of genes or whatever. And you want the best, obviously, for your children. So there's all kinds of, um, all kinds of sort of interesting little sort of asides about that. So yeah, so she's like a, yeah, she's like sort of you and I really and doesn't hibernate and is totally normal because of it. Well, it's interesting, too, though, because she's actually effectively older than everybody else because she's not hibernating four months out of the year. So for every four years, she's basically getting an extra year. Or yeah, yeah. And she, and, she, and she points this out. She, I think she, I think what is she? She's maybe I don't know. She's 16 or 17 or something. Yeah. And, and actually, she she has this sort of, you know, mind of a sort of 20 year old because she spent all that time sort of working and, and thinking, which which really kind of alludes to the fact that most humans will spend uh sort of 23 years of their life asleep not doing anything just sort of you know dreaming of weird stuff <laughs> and and that's a hell of a long time and you go whoa what could you do with 23 years and the answer is actually you know a hell of a lot you could do a lot with 23 years but hey ho we do have to sleep so um but it's it's kind of it's a little allusion to that really i guess and about sleep and 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 what it means to us I mean, are you somebody who, like, how do you feel about dreams personally? Do you enjoy dreams or do you not really remember your dreams or do they play much role in your life? Uh, they, they don't play a huge role, I must say. I've never, I've never sort of dreamed a plot or anything like that. I, I've dreamed maybe a solution, but that was probably in, not in a dream state, but in, in that little semi-waking state. 
you know when you're just about to drift off and your mind is going in all kinds of things you sort of drift off and then and then you're at your first job my first job cleaning a car and then I go and I wake up and I go okay how did I get there because clearly there was a connection I I went through like nine connections and found myself in this in this way and you kind of do that in that little that little sort of waking dream sort of state so I think I've often figured out things in that little sort of dream state, in that sort of semi-waking state, but never actually dreaming. Um, and I have some, I have bizarre dreams. I, I dreamt about cycling last night, but, um, but it's, it's kind of spring here and, and the bicycles are out with the, the kids and I was cycling with them yesterday. So that's obviously the reason, <laughs> but you know. There was some, I, I want to say it was like Thomas Edison or something. I forget who it was, but he would hold sort of balls, like iron balls or something and fall asleep. And so then when he fell asleep, they would fall and wake him up. And cause he, he felt like being <laughs> in that state between waking and sleeping was when he had all his ah, best ideas. I've never heard that. That's a great idea. If I'd had that, wow. If, if I knew that, that would have gone in the book because <laughs> it's, it's that kind of wonderful randomness. Yeah. Oh my God. I could have done so much with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I didn't know that, but yeah, that, that makes total sense. And for Edison or someone like him or someone like Newton, um, you know, that, that who, who just have these amazing sort of flights of imagination, of creative imagination is sort of, you know, in either, you know, mathematical or mechanical. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. Yeah, I wish I'd known about that. Hmm. Um, did you, like, how much thought did you put into how much the rest of the world geographically is like? Cause they, they mentioned like the Ottoman where I gather it's very, very hot all the time. Mm. Or? Yeah. Well, I started off, I mean, one of the early drafts was, um, uh, because clearly, uh, because the, the earth is tilted, um, the presumably is, is, it's summer over the other side of the planet and they must be awake while everyone else is asleep and vice versa. Uh, I originally sort of started, there was, there was references to, um, uh, kind of, um, Argentina and Buenos Aires and, and you'd kind of, cause you'd have guest workers from the other hemisphere. Um, who would come over and there was, uh, there was an Argentinian who, Bagita was originally, um, Argentinian. I think I made her slightly Ottoman in the end, but it just added a big, um, question mark and huge complications that the book could not possibly warrant. Um, perhaps in future books, uh, if there is one, I could do something with it then. And, and the only last vestige of references to, um, South America and Argentina in particular, I, I just chose Argentina because I've been there. I kind of like it. Um, is the Argentinian queen, the, um, the wreck, um, in the dream on the Gower. Um, but there it is. It's still there, like flies in amber, but all references went. But yeah, clearly there is something going on. Um, but it's, it's the other side of the, the other side of the world and it's very hot and inhospitable, um, in the middle. Um, quite how we're really cold at the poles and then hot in the middle, not sure, but I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure someone can figure it out. John Wooten, for, for instance. <laughs> I think he'll have all the answers. But, but so that thing with the Argentinian queen, is that, that's a real, is that a real thing? Um, uh, no, it was actually the SS America. Um, uh, which you again can find on Wikipedia. Um, and it was, it was, I saw a photograph of it. Uh, it was wrecked off Puerto Ventura, which I believe is in the Canary Islands. Um, it was wrecked there, I don't know, in the sort of seventies or eighties. And it became the most amazing picturesque wreck uh, that you can possibly imagine. It just looks so stately and so beautiful. And it was this old ocean liner. It's being towed off for scrap and it, and it parted its, um, parted its tow rope and then and drifted and broke its back at, at Port Ventura. And it was there for, I think, 20 years before it collapsed into the sea. And now I think you can just see a tiny little bit of iron sticking out the, the surf. 
but um, well worth to have a look at. And it was, uh, I, I, when you're writing and when I'm writing, I, I tend to, I got all these little images in my head, you know, cause the, the, the iron balls you were talking about now, that's now in my head and I could use that in future. And, and you, you collect all this stuff. I'm, I'm interested in stuff. Stuff interests me. And I'm always sort of reading and looking at things and, you know, random Wikipedia, you know, press the random button and there's always something interesting. And it all kind of sticks in the inside in some form or fashion. And then when I'm writing, I go, okay, there's a wreck. Oh, let's have a wreck. Yeah. Let's, let's have that to represent, um, a uh, sort of rust and decay and the fact that there's, that Charlie can look at the wreck in the dream and know where it is and that this is a long time ago because the wreck is now nothing but but just twisted iron. Um, and that seemed a good metaphor to use. So so often when, when you're writing, you just uh, all these things just pop out my head and seem to work and is a correct fit, and then it just sort of works. But I have quite a lot in my head, as you might imagine, and it just pops <laughs> out at un- unusual places. But that's what it was, SS America in uh, Port Ventura. Right. So just for listeners, so in the book, Charlie keeps dreaming of this wreck on a beach. Um, and, uh, it's Rossilli Beach. Uh, yeah, it's Rossilli Beach on the Gower. The Gower Peninsula is a spectacularly beautiful part of Wales. And Wales is actually a really beautiful, um, uh, country anyway. Um, and this is, uh, Charlie, Ch- Charlie uh, f- finds themselves in this identical dream, um, again and again and again. And it's identical. It's unchanging. And it's of, uh, a couple. He, uh, Charlie dreams. Uh, that, that Charlie is not Charlie, is someone else and is with this character named Bagheeta, who Charlie has met in the real world. And, and they're on the beach and they're under a parasol and they're on a stripy towel and there's this wreck near them and the, and the gulls scream and a child runs past with a gurgle of laughter chasing a beach ball. And it happens again and again in exactly the same way, just, just like sort of, you know, like a, you know, running a, you know, a film again and again. And it's, it's a perfect moment. And, and I kind of like this idea of perfect moments within romances, that there is that time in, in any relationship where you have with someone that is the perfect moment. And sometimes it's, you know, you share the perfect moment, other time it's perfect for someone. But for these two characters, it's their perfect moment. And Charlie revisits this perfect moment night after night after night. And the question is, you know, why is that happening? Um, and this all keys into, uh, you know, essentially dreams and hypertech and all kinds of interesting things. But that was essentially it. And it was just the furniture within this perfect moment, I think, that, uh, that I was trying to, that I was trying to recreate between these, um, these characters, uh, um, Begita and, oh, I can't remember his name. Oh my goodness. Can't remember. Anyway, it's their, it's their perfect little, perfect. Well, it's moment. Charles. They're both Charles, right? Oh, they are both Charles. You're right. Of course it is. Yeah. Charles, Charlie. Yeah. Charles. It's Charles Magita. Of course it is. Yeah. That's right. It's got the same name. Um, yeah. So it's this perfect moment, moment between Charles and Magita. And also then I could have be telling a almost a proxy love story. This is, uh, this is a love story that is between two people who are no longer together. Um, but every night Charlie returns to this perfect moment between these two people who are clearly very much in love. And, and again, I, I like, I like that idea. It's an unconventional love story. It's a different way of looking at, um, at narrative, at drama. And, um, and hopefully it's, it's intriguing and thought provoking. It was funny because just before I started talking to you, just quickly, I Googled Rosselli Beach and I saw it was mm. rated the best beach in Europe, which 
maybe I'm I'm out of the loop, but I, I wouldn't have necessarily expected the best beach in Europe to be in Wales. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, why not? Uh, it's uh, well, I think I mean it's it's how do you gauge uh, a beach, and if it's for it's it's completely unspoiled. I mean, you can you uh, you can buy an ice cream or get some fish and chips, and then it's a quarter of a mile walk down long stairs, and you get there, and it's vast. You will not have to share it with anyone. You could you could play around. You can have your own so hundred yard square and still <laughs> have t- ten thousand people on the beach, and you can walk up it. It's like three miles long. It has a wreck in the middle of it. Uh, these wooden um, wooden uh, ribs of a of a ship are sticking out of the sand like a sort of dinosaur and there are rocky crags and there's the worm's head and far in the distance um you can see a lighthouse an abandoned lighthouse which is a cast iron lamp uh, lighthouse and it's just and there are hills behind it it's framed perfectly so for that reason i think they've totally got it it's i think it is the best beach in in <laughs> wales in in europe you know certainly um yeah it's, it's best beach i've ever been on Sounds like a good venue for a Ford Fiesta. Yeah, could be. Actually, could be. Although, by long tradition, the Ford Fiesta does have to be in Swindon due to the connection of the Thursday Next series. And we, we're having one in this year, actually. It's in. Um, it's at the end of uh, May. It's at the end of May, 24th, 25th. So, um, yeah, that'd be fun. And hijinks will, uh, will prevail over the weekend. Do you just want to say a little bit more about what that is for people who might not know? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, the Ford uh, the Ford Fiesta, as it's called, uh, I think we're on Fiesta 9 now. I think it's 9. We first started doing these in 2005, um, and essentially uh, they are a sort of gathering of, a rough gathering of people, and and the, the kind of connecting factor are my books. So it's called the Ford Fiesta. But it really kind of attracts people who are just have a quirky sense of humour and want to meet other people who kind of like my books. And it's, I always say that it's kind of not about me. It's about people who share this sense of delight in the absurd. Um, and they, they don't just read my books. Obviously they read lots of different books and they discuss them over the, the weekend. And we have games and all kinds of things, which are sort of based around, uh, based around my books. So we, and we have poetry conversations. We have, um, avoid the question time, which is always interesting. Um, and we have a fancy dress, which is, um, highly competitive. Um, if everybody, if everybody, if anyone ever says, you know, Oh, I, I kind of want to go to the, the Fiesta, maybe I'll go in two years time. And I always say, well, get started on your costume now, because it mm. is exceptionally competitive. And we have one particular individual, Emma, who is, is like extraordinary. And it's like, you know, not like who will, who will win, but who will win who isn't Emma. You know, because she always comes up with extraordinary, because it's not just the costume. She does a whole scene from the book. You know, I mean, it's just amazing. Um, but everyone really, really try hard to try and knock her off the top post. Um, but I think she's won it the, certainly the last two years running and maybe more than that. So yeah, the, the, the fancy dress is very competitive. Well, let me just explain about the avoid the question is you're, you're doing your sort of best, uh, White House press secretary, uh. Yeah, um, yeah, well, this was a, this was actually, uh, this was a TV show. We have a, ch- a show here called, uh, Question Time, uh, in the UK, and it's a, a panel of politicians. And, um, 
and members of the audience uh, ask a question, right? But I always called it, uh, I always called it avoid the question time, uh, because of course, uh, what politicians generally do is try and dodge past the difficult questions and then, and then go back to stump speech. And, and I, I made this as a scene in one of the Thursday Next books. Um, and in fact, it became like a game show. And you were given scores on how well, as a politician, you'd avoided the question. You know, hmm. you had not, well, you know, you didn't answer that question at all. And in fact, you know, then made uh, three spurious arguments, you know, trashed the opposition and then, you know, then, then towed the party line. So you get a full four points. Well done. Congratulations. And I think you, you, they win a lounge sweeter or some steak knives at the end of it. And it was, you know, it was kind of satirical, but, um, but, um, yeah, politics has changed since I wrote that because I must have written that in about 2004 or something. And I keep on getting these emails saying, Jasper, you saw the future with your avoid <laughs> the question time. So yes, it, it's, it's an idea that, that, that had legs and it continues to have legs. Hmm. All right. So unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. So do you have any, just any final thoughts you wanted to mention or any upcoming projects or? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you, uh, um, yes, I mean, I've always got projects. Um, the, um, luckily the creative hiatus seems to have ended. I, I wrote another book, uh, last year after I, dra- I first drafted another book, 100,000 words. Um, I call it my sort of, um, post Brexit anger, uh, book. It's going to be very interesting, I think, um, to see what comes up here. I'm, you know, just talking about the UK. Um, very interesting what comes up from a, in, because uh, we know there will be uh, obviously non-fiction books about you know Europe and, and Brexit, but I want to know the art and the music and the and the fictional books that come out post Brexit um, that that represent you know what people feel is happening in the UK because this is a major deal here. This is you know as far as I'm concerned, it's like this sort of swing towards you know really unpleasant sort of um, aspect of nationalism that I absolutely despise. And, and I decided I have to, I had to write a book that, that, that took this into, you know, took this into consideration. So that'll be coming out hopefully in, in February 2020. So, um, yeah, so I'm back is basically. Is there, a, is there a title for that? Oh, it's called The Constant Rabbit. Uh, The Constant Rabbit. And the, the idea for it, I don't quite know what the narrative there is, but essentially, um, rabbits, 18 rabbits became anthropomorphized, um, during an event in 1965. There was this, this, an anomalous anthropomorphic event and 18 rabbits suddenly became human-like and they talk and uh, drive cars and and you know and read uh, country living and say things like goodness do you really think that's that's wise you know really very very british and exceptionally british and they wear corduroy and you know and live in little sort of houses and stuff um and anyway so that was in 1965 and it's 55 years later there's 1.8 million rabbits and um Clearly, uh, this is an issue because my my protagonist has some rabbits move into the village, and of course, the village go all a little bit bananas over it. Um, but that's basically the sort of rationale. And um, you know, talking talking animals. I mean, what's not to like? Great fun, great fun. Yeah, great. And and also, you know, keep a, keep uh, the uh, early riser sequel in mind with the uh, dropping the balls. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. I'd like to yeah. get some credit for that. Okay. No, you can, in the acknowledgements. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you're there. Your name there. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Perfect. All right, so we've been speaking with Jasper Ford about his new book, Early Riser. So, Jasper, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. It's been uh, it's been great fun. Thank you. And that was our interview. So, big thanks again to Jasper Ford for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Phil J, Jonathan Gudino, and Patty Elizabeth Montet, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon.
Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Brendan Reichs for sponsoring today's show. Learn more about Chrysalis, the new novel in his Fire Lake trilogy, over at brentonreichs.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.